the world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by medieval historian Paul Friedman to talk about Lord of the Rings. So, Paul, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for this opportunity, Sarah. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you were interested in talking about Lord of the Rings in particular? Well, I got my degree rather longer ago than uh, I'd like to admit uh, from University of California, Berkeley. And I have studied the history of the church in the Middle Ages, peasants, food, and uh, a number of related topics, mostly having to do with Catalonia or uh, the northeastern part of the current Spanish state. And I put that in a kind of circumlocuitous fashion because Catalonia is trying to become independent or at least uh, realign its relationship with Spain. So my interest in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings goes back to, I guess, college. I knew of it in high school, and there were people who were fans of it, and they used to read Lord of the Rings aloud. And while I didn't despise them, I didn't I didn't get it. Uh, mm-hmm. I had read The Hobbit, and I thought it was charming, but for kids. I wasn't mm-hmm. really aware until my freshman year of, of college that Lord of the Rings had a, you know, a different kind of tone. And I was already interested in the Middle Ages. And I don't happen to like fiction set in the Middle Ages for the most part, but Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings, of course, it's not exactly the Middle Ages. It's a world of its own. And it's such a magical and wonderful world that, um, yeah, I was immediately entranced. And I guess in terms of my relationship with Lord of the Rings, it was kind of interesting in that I didn't have much kind of temporally speaking separation between the books and the movies because the films came out starting in 2001. And I guess so I would have been 14 when they first came out. So because of that, I think it was actually when I heard about the movies coming out, that is actually, you know, when I was in my you know, early teens-ish that I, you know, sat down and actually read the books. So in a way, my experience is the opposite. Since I read the books long before, well, there was a very poor movie done, mm-hmm. uh, I think in the 70s, maybe. It's animated, uh, right? 80s, an animated movie. And I took pains to avoid watching it because I was afraid that uh, even if it wasn't as bad as people said, it would ruin my impression from the books. Mm-hmm. And I had some of the same fear with the Peter Jackson movies of the early 2000s. And I don't care for them that much for mm-hmm. two reasons. One is that there, there are way too much battles and warfare, mm-hmm. which I believe was designed to make sure that the movie appealed to guys or yeah. to boys and that it wasn't seen as excessively emotional. 
The other was, I thought that they did a terrible job of the beautiful places in Lord mm. of the Rings. So that they, they really made the Shire seem like a kind of comical. Sort land. of backwater. Backwater. Yeah. Kind of like uh, hillbillies. And they made Rivendell seem like a spa. And I don't really even remember Lothlorien. It just, it just seemed to be uh, Solomon boring. So nonetheless, I have preserved the, uh, uh, the kind of impression that I got from the start. It's interesting because uh, I I've always been very fond of the movies, uh, but I as you know I watched them all you know in theaters coming out, and I I think because I read them in such close proximity, there are at least certain characters whose appearance to some extent is kind of indelibly linked with their with the casting in the film, and so yeah, and so I have them in some ways kind of intertwined in my head in a lot of ways, even while also being aware of a lot of the uh, kind of interesting distinctions that we see in those uh, between the two. Indeed. I should say that right from the start, there were a couple of things I wondered about in, in Lord of the Rings. And of course, you know, you shouldn't start uh, assuming that uh, real life has to affect things. But I always wondered, like, where did all the hordes of Mordor get the food to eat if it was such a desert. Right. And, and he does say that they've got like agricultural slaves uh, near the Sea of Nurn or whatever it's called. But it, it just seemed like the logistics of supply, uh, mm-hmm. a matter that we're now unfortunately more familiar with, uh, didn't work out. Also, uh, and I eventually wrote about this with a co-author, in an article called What's Taters Precious, mm-hmm. uh, I wondered why there was so little food outside yeah. the fire, why sex and food seemed to be in mm-hmm. very short supply, but mm-hmm. nobody, nobody seemed to experience this as a shortage. Yeah, and food in particular is really interesting. I mean, there's, uh, there's almost this kind of, you know, the, the hobbits are almost defined by food, in that that is presented as being the the thing that they are by far kind of most interested in and most passionate about. And it's kind of what distinguishes the hobbits as they're leaving the Shire, right? That they keep kind of complaining about being hungry and everybody keeps saying like, you know, deal with it. Exactly. (laughs) The other beings are either too grand for food. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't imagine Gandalf, I mean, has been like uh, trapped in the Tower of Orthanc for months, and and the least of his problems seems to be nourishment. Right. Um, it's hard to imagine Sauron sitting down to lunch, uh, you know. And um, so either the creatures are ravenous, you know, hmm. slob, or they seem to be on a different plane. Uh, the figure of Sauron interested me because he does like to smoke. And so does Mm. Gandalf. Of course, they're kind of, you know, Donish figures. Their their wisdom, as well as their vanity, is uh, taken from Tolkien's uh, academic experience at Oxford, Mm -hmm. presumably. Hence the pipe smoking uh, Mm -hmm. as well. But most creatures seem to be either too tough, too evil, or too spiritually elevated to care about what's for dinner. Yeah, and and Saruman, he does have very kind of well-stocked larders, but we don't see him personally eating a great deal. Right, and we have mushrooms, 
bacon, cheese, bread. There are very few cooked meals. And that's why mm-hmm. I entitled the article, What's Tater's Precious? Because that's one of the few scenes of uh, cooking and mm-hmm. discussion of cooking, where Sam has uh, started cooking the rabbits or conies that Gollum has helpfully brought him. And Gollum is disgusted by cooking mm-hmm. since he eats these things raw. And Sam says, uh, uh, you know, if you behave and we get out of this alive, I'll cook you, uh, you know, uh, uh, taters, uh, because he, he's bemoaning the absence of taters to go, mm-hmm. taters to go with the with the rabbit. And he also promises fish and chips, which yes. seems kind of like Quite modern. Uh, yeah, and, and an anomaly in the sense that, I mean, of course, it's not medieval Europe exactly, but they certainly didn't have potatoes. And Christian <laughs> chips dates from the 19th century. So it was almost as if he said, we'll go out to uh, McDonald's and have a double cheeseburger. Right. And it's it's interesting in the sense that there there is all of this kind of inclusion of food, which Tolkien presumably knew quite well is not food that would have been available in the Middle Ages. So, you know, that we that we have potatoes. Uh, The films have an odd fascination with tomatoes as well, that there are multiple references to like tomatoes and bacon as being a good meal in the the Denethor food episode, which is not in the books, uh, but which is in the film, I think kind of manages somehow, but in a set of stories that's really about kind of simple in some ways conflicts between good and evil. Somehow Denethor manages to be by far the most unlikable character for me at least. And that And that scene of him eating in some ways, one of the more disturbing moments in the film, there's something particularly grotesque about the, his, uh, like what it's like, he has like cherry tomatoes that are sort of bursting in his face. (laughs) And uh, he's got like, what, like a like chicken or something that he's gnawing on. His greed and self-absorption is uh, conveyed very well by the film. It doesn't happen to be in the book, but I think it's one of the examples of something in the film that does develop character and that I like, if anything, better. But it is odd that it's cherry tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah the, the cherry tomatoes, I was definitely kind of noticing yeah, on this round as being kind of especially striking. And it's, you know, the way you're seeing them sort of burst as he kind of half eats them. Uh, as, a, yeah, as I said, there is a real kind of grotesqueness to it. Well, I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it, but it is true that he comes across as more anger provoking and unlikable than even flat out evil characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, and part of it is that it's, in some ways I find it's very hard to hate Sauron exactly because there's, in some ways there's not enough Sauron to hate. Right, but that makes him all the more sinister. I think one of the uh, ingenious things is the, deep history of Sauron, Mm -hmm. the fact that the entire series is named after him Mm -hmm. and his near invisibility, making a moment where, is it Merry or Pippin who looks into the Palantir? Pippin. Pippin sees him. Yeah. And Sauron actually talks to him Mm -hmm. and tells him to tell Sauron this dainty is not for him. It's uh, one of the most... uh, uh, gripping and sinister uh, moments because otherwise you have, uh, you know, 
the camera is not on Sauron. Uh, almost mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. And it, it is in the films, I guess, a little bit, you know, in, in a literal sense, a little bit more, but that it's, you know, this, this great eye, right. That we kind of see in the tower of Barad-dur. But then that I think to some extent is kind of, uh, in some ways he is kind of more menacing when he's not on screen in a lot of ways than in, uh, than in those scenes where you're kind of seeing the eye. I mean, the kind of searchlight eye, As uh, Frodo and Sam are walking through Mordor is one of the special effects that I think has kind of held up the uh, the least well um, out of many things that I think, you know, hold up quite well overall, visually speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I want to spend some time maybe uh, perhaps kind of talking about some of the uh, the kind of other characters in the books and in the films. Are there particular kind of characters that you, you know, reading the books for the first time kind of felt particularly sort of interested in or connected to? Huh. Well, I was fascinated with Elrond, mm-hmm. uh, maybe because at that time I certainly had a desire for wisdom. Mm-hmm. And he is only half an elf. So, like, yeah. how did he become so wise if he's not? Uh, and why Why is he described as uh, half elfin? And he has, again, an academically inspired combination of affection, distance, grandeur, uh, a slight out of itness, uh, and, you know, particular insight. So like telling Aragorn to take the paths of the dead, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that's a, a, an interesting and I guess under the circumstances counterintuitive piece of wisdom. Some other characters who you were supposed to be impressed with I found kind of boring. Um, uh-huh. um, the lady of uh, Lothlorien, Galadriel, mm-hmm. um, I, got, I kind of got tired of her. And I wondered at her relationship with her husband, because I didn't yeah. think that Sereborn had a whole lot to say for himself. On the other hand, I loved Lothlorien as an idea. Mm-hmm. And in general, the female characters, lots of people have said this before, are few and not tremendously convincing and this is not the same but is related to the absence of sex and mm-hmm. the the absence of ra- any kind of materialistic sexual desire i mean mm-hmm. a- as far as i remember the one character who is credited with actual lust is worm tongue yes which is obviously you know then uh, not not speaking well for uh, sexual desire if you know worm tongue is our sole representation of it exactly i mean of course aragorn is in love and uh, of course eowyn um eowyn is in love with him and is it arwen is willing to give up immortality mm-hmm. so love is there and uh, everybody seems to fall of the Fellowship of the Ring may fall in love with Galadriel, but this kind of love is pretty uh, high and spiritual and is not mm-hmm. associated. This is, of course, one of the areas, along with food, that is a stunning contrast with Game of Thrones. Yes. I imagine you're discussing uh, in a separate podcast, but nevertheless, it's a tempting kind of to set these two mm-hmm. um, and, and I think probably the author of Game of Thrones was aware of Tolkien and and set up certain things in in, in contra, you know, R.R. R. Martin. 
in contrast to Lord of the Rings. I think he has actually said that, that or not necessarily Lord of the Rings per se, I don't remember, but that there is this kind of, but that essentially the kind of high fantasy tropes, which is everybody knows very much come from Tolkien, that he was very interested in, in challenging those tropes essentially and presenting what he claims to be a more realistic vision of the world, which is, you know, in some ways isn't, in some ways isn't, of course. And I, uh, I have a, I have a Game of Thrones episode that I uh, did a while back, uh, actually, that my mother was on. Oh, um, oh, awesome. Great. <laughs> but yeah, that uh, he's very much, I think, kind of reacting against this world where, yeah, that even though we have love, we have very little passion. And I was, uh, you know, I, you know, re- reread the books recently and was uh, re-watching the films and it's something really kind of very striking in terms of even though they kind of try to build up Arwen as a character. And Arwen is a character that I actually actively disliked as a young woman reading these books that I felt very much like uh, I, I felt I very much kind of had this like intense anger about, about that feeling that Aragorn had made the wrong choice. Uh, mm-hmm. Because especially reading the books, it's this very passive and in many ways sort of uninteresting and powerless woman. I mean, Arwen really does virtually nothing in the books versus Eowyn, who is, you know, sort of very active and interesting and fun. And she kills the Witch King of Angmar. And it's one of those moments that, you know, as an adult, I very much acknowledge is a little like, you know, in the in the books, it's a little like, you know, okay, she kind of does this and then she is kind of sent off to go and kind of be appropriately wifely. And in the films, it's very much kind of making it into this sort of early 2000s girl power moment. But, you know, damned if I don't cheer every time. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I always found that very frustrating. And the films do try to kind of build up Arwen's character. So in particular, that they give her a lot more to do in fellowship, that there's kind of all of these bits where it's... um any accommodation of uh, Elrond and Glorfindel kind of do various things to kind of help uh, Frodo actually get into Rivendell. Oh, um, right. Yeah, they kind of give a lot of those to Arwen. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, as I said, just, just so she has something to do as opposed to just literally in the book, it's like you just kind of see her at the feast and she's just kind of there. Uh-huh. So she has a Buffy the Vampire role. Right, exactly. So it's like, so they're, yes, they need to be like, oh, you know, she, she's a healer. She's really good at that. And, you know, she has to kind of show up and be like, I'll be the one to take him into Rivendell Aragorn because I'm the faster writer than you are. Uh uh Um, And so it's a little like, all right, like, I I see that you're trying, but you're not actually making this any better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of characters that I, you know, that, that you're not supposed to dislike but that I dislike anyway. So I'm not sure I'm the whole uh, Lord of the Mark business. Uh, I was enchanted with the idea as a teenager or as a college student of the scene in which the king who has fallen under the spell of Wormtongue and via Mm -hmm. Wormtongue of Saruman, Gandalf... uh, you know, opens the window to him and shows him mm-hmm. the world and says, in effect, you know, you're not as feeble as you've been led uh, to think. And I, yeah. I took that very seriously and loved that scene, but I didn't, uh, I, I found the 
Feoden and uh, his people, I don't know, kind of just too Anglo-Saxon, too, too mm-hmm. the world becomes too literal an imitation of some other mm-hmm. world at that point. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I, the elves are Celts, and mm-hmm. uh, what is the name of the people that Theoden commands? Uh, the writers of Rohan. Yeah, the, the Rohirrim. Yeah, the Rohirrim are are you know are Anglo Saxons, and mm-hmm. Gondor is you know maybe Byzantium. I mean, sure, there are there are parallels, but somehow that was uh, you know their their use of alliteration in their in the poetry, mm-hmm. the burning of the ceremonial uh, cremations you know mm-hmm. that 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 was a uh, a little uh, too nordic or too Saxon uh, uh-huh. for me yeah and that there is also i would say a bit of a you know a kind of sense of this in some ways i think a kind of idealization also of that culture of the culture of rohirrim to some extent over the culture associated with some place like gondor uh, which, you know, as, as more of a city person and an urban historian as well, I always was like, I, I mean, Gondor seems like a much more interesting and pleasant place to live in. I mean, except for the, you know, being on the, on, you know, on Sauron's, ba- you know, in Sauron's backyard, essentially. But other than that, right. I'd much rather live in Gondor. Better restaurants, one presumes. Yeah, certainly better restaurants. And, uh, you know, the and, and Gondor is, I will say, one of the aesthetic things that I really liked in the film, but I thought uh, the aesthetics of Gondor as the city are stunning. There's a lot of, uh, I guess I'd say in particular, kind of medieval, kind of late medieval Italian reference mm-hmm. visually. There's a lot of the kind of like striped Tuscan marble. The gates have these relief sculpture, sculptures, which feel very kind of 14th, 15th century Italian. That aesthetically, it's really interesting. It's like, oh, if I was going to live somewhere in Middle Earth, that seems like, yeah, the, the place that would be sort of most interesting. Definitely. I agree. I was very much kind of struck on this re- rereading and rewatching it with Boromir, who is uh, a character who I feel like often is in some ways kind of dismissed or forgotten about because he, you know, exits relatively early in uh, because he, you know, tries to take the ring but that he very much does also have this kind of really heroic moment in that, you know, he, of course, kind of dies attempting to save Mary and Pippin. And that also, I think there is kind of some really interesting things that I was sort of uh, wrestling with in terms of what kinds of choices are being made about who is actively tempted by the ring and who isn't. And what exactly it is that makes somebody actively tempted by the ring or not actively tempted by the ring. Yeah. And I think it's unpredictable. Yeah. Boromir may be more predictable than most because right from the start at the Council of Elrond, he is very proud of himself and Mm -hmm. the fact that they are fighting Sauron right now, whereas nobody else is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, not to overdo things that we're all preoccupied with at the moment of uh, taping this podcast, but, you know, it's like uh, somebody from Ukraine yeah. uh, in Paris telling people, diplomats and policymakers there, what it's like on the front lines. Mm-hmm. But so his temptation, you can sort of foresee, but the way in which the hobbits are positioned in Middle-earth as ordinary people who rise to extraordinary Mm -hmm. occasions or to 
extraordinary deeds because of catastrophic occasions. They then have to be contrasted with what uh, are referred to as the great mm-hmm. uh, or you know the wizards and nobles and kings, but also with people who are impulsive. Mm-hmm. So without being intellectuals, the hobbits have sense and sensibility, um, mm-hmm. uh, self-sacrifice, friendship, a certain kind of modesty, uh, caution, and of course, modesty and caution are what are lacking mm-hmm. Boromir. Boromir would have responded that, you know, well, the hobbits aren't really good for anything. They're small, right. among other things. But uh, in fact, as we see, the hobbits perform not only great feats of endurance, a la Frodo mm-hmm. and Sam, but, uh, you know, actually um, kill dangerous enemies like mm-hmm. Marion Pippin. Yeah. And and then, of course, then the interesting outlier in that regard, of course, is Gollum, who is presented as being a, a, you know, a kind of hobbit and but who was essentially almost immediately, uh, you know, so tempted that he murdered a friend for uh, in order to kind of get his hands on this ring. Yeah. And it's it's interesting in terms of this kind of question, what what is it that made Gollum at that beginning so different from Bilbo, who, you know, was able to have the ring for so long, you know, with it having relatively little impact on him? Yes. Well, that then highlights the difference between Gollum's uh, creatures uh, and uh, hobbits. Hobbits have more personal substance that can resist the addiction, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, poor Gollum, they just prescribed pain reliever for uh, an athletic injury and he was hooked. <laughs> right. And it, you know, destroys his entire life. You know, it's it's interesting. I actually do. I did like the choice uh, in the films that they then kind of have that at, I think, the opening of Return of the King. They kind of bring in all of that backstory and actually kind of show the flashback scene. That's right. That's right. I think that 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 is good. And the the way they did animated uh, Gollum was, I mean, it wasn't exactly my vision, but, but it was good and yeah. it was creepy and convincing and disturbing. Yeah. And I thought, I thought the, yeah, the visualization of Gollum is really excellent with the, uh, the kind of one exception being in that flashback scene, there is this, you know, they, there's this kind of transition of Gollum, you know, or from, from Smeagol into Gollum. And there is this right. kind of one midpoint where he sort of looks like the Grinch <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't. I didn't grow up with the Grinch, so uh, I didn't notice that. But of course, uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But other than that, I think it's you know excellent. You know, Andy Circus does a really great job of uh, you know kind of. I, I think he kind of has this sort of niche of uh, playing things where you never actually see his face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is really kind of taken over the sort of stop motion animation. Definitely. I wanted to kind of say a little about about Saruman as well, that we have this uh, kind of interest in the ways in which wisdom can essentially kind of lead you astray as well as leading you into righteous paths, that we have this kind of contrast between Gandalf and Saruman being presented here. Yeah, the temptation there is power and the desire to use power to set others in order. One of the problems of the book is that it's a little hard to see how people get seduced by Sauron. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think that was more of a problem in the past for me because 
I have a lot of trouble understanding why people get seduced by ideologies that are current mm-hmm. now or yeah. by prominent political figures who to me seem to be crazy and unlikable mm-hmm. and yet command lots of followers. Yeah. But my sense of Saruman was always that he makes sense psychologically mm-hmm. as someone who wants more uh, than uh, his already high status as a wizard seems to afford him. Mm-hmm. And who, like Boromir, although in a different way, is impatient and not cautious. Mm-hmm. And so much of the wisdom literature of all cultures of the past emphasizes not just bravery, but thinking before you act. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saruman is uh, obviously, like his master Sauron, way overconfident. Yes. Uh, And it takes the form of intellectual arrogance as well as um, conventional power madness. Mm -hmm. So he he is an interesting character, particularly when it's not yet clear that uh, he has gone over to the dark side. And then, of course, after his defeat, his uh, ruining of the Shire and his mm-hmm. resentment reminds me of a number of <laughs> tenured academics held in um, uh, contempt by their by their peers, but nevertheless still there. <laughs> but once again, I'm aware of the fact that being a professor, uh, I may have a kind of narrow view of the comparative experience, but there it is. <laughs> But I do really, I really like his, I, I mean, not, you know, like exactly, but I really appreciated the choice of him, you know, going off and ruining the Shire, just uh, in some ways, almost the kind of sheer pettiness of it, that yes. it is in, in terms of, you know, in comparison to his earlier aims and lofty goals, it seems kind of so minor in so many ways, but also very much kind of has this interesting angle of showing that not even the Shire is able to remain fully untouched. And that is one of the things I don't like about the films is the idea that the Shire, it seems like they actually almost kind of went through this entire episode and didn't ever notice anything was wrong. Uh, Yeah, they seem to be uninterested in it. Whereas Tolkien is extremely focused on it. It's part of Tolkien's anti-industrial, anti-modern, the ruining of the British countryside with which he was so familiar the infatuation of people with science and technology and convenience. So this, like the fish and chips, may seem to be an over-obvious intrusion of contemporary concerns. Mm-hmm. And you have the feeling with Tolkien that once he's allowed himself a certain amount of anger, it turns into a, a, a rage with mm-hmm. Miller Sandyman being kind of like the... Uh, the inventor of every bad uh, polluting technology on earth. (laughs) Nevertheless, the the pettiness of Saruman, I find once again, compatible with the behavior of certain kinds of people I've known in academia. And even though you're younger than I am and don't have quite the accumulation of years of experience, uh, I'm sure this is not completely unfamiliar to you either, Sarah. 
Yes, uh, just the the people who I know who are in that position uh, are not my peers because my peers have not uh, yet reached the ability the moment where they are able to have that kind of position uh, since. But but you may be able to perceive people who have that potential, just as you know one gets uneasy about Saruman early on. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, and he's very much kind of part of this industrialism uh, or kind of anti-industrialism narrative too, right? That he's kind of destroying the the trees in order to kind of produce destroying weapons. Destroying the trees, yeah. yeah. And, and also Tolkien gives him that kind of uh, tone that pundits, industrialists, venture capitalists, uh, tech people have of this is the future. Mm-hmm. I am on the... Yeah. Uh, well, they wouldn't be on a train. I am on the spaceship to the mm-hmm. future. And mm-hmm. you are going to be stuck in your analog uh, and reactionary world uh, tough on you. And yeah. the future may be uh, harsher, but uh, it conforms to what in Tolkien is a kind of aristocratic. Mm-hmm. The, the wise need to get on board with the new Mm-hmm. wave. In our time, it's put more as the the savvy, the with it, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, graduates from top schools, the, the hip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's, Sar- Saramit is very yeah, self-consciously hip uh, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he, Saruman may be sort of an older person trying to embrace uh, the lingo and right. the ideology of people <laughs> who, in fact, are, if not younger than him, Sauron, mm-hmm. you know, going back quite a ways, but have a rhetoric of, uh, you know, this is the this is the future. And, and mm-hmm. I'm telling you what the future is and your resistance to it is pathetic. Right. Again, as professors, we've got all this stuff about MOOCs, you know, massive online uh-huh. uh, uh, open courses uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you're trying to resist this because you have a, you're an incumbent, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you, you like the old world of just standing on a stage and giving lectures to rapt undergraduates, but that's over. And right. uh, you're, you know, you're not going to have your job for very long because it'll be possible to teach history uh, medieval history, let's say, across the United States with only three people uh, as content <laughs> providers, and it'll all be broadcast. And just because you're not with this program or going to lose your job doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were wrong. There's no, there's no ring that was thrown into the cracks of doom that I know of. But that particular thing, uh, or the tone in which we were told pre-pandemic, your students love remote learning, and they'd love yeah. nothing better than just to see you on a screen at you know 2 a.m. when they're awake, rather than having to trudge into some lecture hall live at you know some ungodly early hour like 10 30. And of course, th- that was proven to be completely wrong. The students hated remote learning with a passion that even the most resistant pundits who write for the Chronicle of Higher Education have on some level to admit. Yeah. Now, of course, Lord of the Wings is not, uh, (laughs) I 
I acknowledge it's not about my current preoccupation, but <laughs> the, the tone of this is the world of the future and you've got to accept it, I think is mm-hmm. very, very important in Tolkien and that the resistance yeah. comes not just from the leaders of the coalition against Sauron, but from some segment of ordinary people who realize mm-hmm. that it's only a segment, given that even at the end, the hobbits of the Shire don't seem to be kind of, uh, you know, Sam's gaffer doesn't even seem to be aware of exactly what's been wrong. Right. Right. But yeah, but no, it is. Uh, but as I said, I do think it is really interesting that they at least have kind of some people in the Shire who get to uh, kind of experience, you know, real problems and this uh, kind of, you know, onset of modernization. And and he does, to some extent, have this sense of there being not quite that industrialization, but of kind of passing into an age which is no longer this kind of age of legends, right? That we have the, the Grey Havens that we learned that so many of the grander and more ethereal beings of Middle-earth are leaving and it's becoming a world predominantly of men. The disenchantment of the world Mm-hmm. of Middle-earth was the thing that most impressed me mm-hmm. uh, when I read it and still now, that longing or futile nostalgia or awareness of the passing of beauty, of uh, mystery, mm-hmm. of grandeur. And unfortunately, that speaks to the experience that Tolkien was aware of in terms of industrialization and the mm-hmm. passing of uh, the kind of rural life that he admired. In our case, it's more intense because the very passing of nature or yeah. spoilation of nature through human intervention has become such a dramatic problem and has provoked mm-hmm. the kind of, but but of course, it's it's nature and not persons. The the gray havens and the you know Frodo's first assumption that he's going to enjoy the Shire now that he's Mm -hmm. saved the world. And then realization that the difference between him and Sam is that he can't get over the the hurt. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it's in the book or in the movie, but in the the BBC recording, he and Sam, he tells Sam to go for, let's go for, you know, a ride or a walk. And then they are waiting by the great road and the procession of the people leaving Middle Earth comes and Elrond, I think says, um, are you coming, Frodo? Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, in the in the film. They're going actually to see off uh, Bilbo. Is uh, they know Bilbo is going. You know, he's still you know he's very very right. old, and they know Bilbo is going off to the Grey Havens, and so they go off. Uh, you know, they go to kind of see Bilbo off, and it's you know Sam and Merry and Pippin are there as well, and then you know there is the the surprise that yeah Frodo yeah. is going along yeah. as well. Yeah. And I, I do think also, you know, with this industrialization element, I think it is the right choice on the part of Tolkien to kind of keep Saruman in this world as a potential current or a continued threat. It's interesting that the movie is instead kind of, uh, well, the extended version of the movie ties it off with a neat little bow of killing him off. And he gets no resolution whatsoever in the theatrical cut where you just never see him again, essentially, after the, uh, the, the taking of Isengard. Yeah. Um, but yeah. in the extended version, Wormtongue kills him. And we see him kind of dramatically, you know, being stabbed and then kind of falling right. onto the spiked wheel. Right. So he's extremely dead. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess in the book, he just kind of vaporizes. I think Wormtongue kills him. Oh, he does kill him. But once he stabs him, mm, and then that's right. the, the hobbit archers kill Wormtongue, shoot arrows. Right, yes. But uh, Wormtongue just lies dead while Sauron dematerializes into mm-hmm. a kind of threatening looking cloud that then the right. wind blows away. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, you, you have to kind of wonder up, you know, given that we know that sort of vaporizing isn't exactly a permanent death. I mean, because Sauron sort of, you know, crumbles when he is, uh, when he has the ring taken away from him uh, early on, you have to sort of wonder, you know, is, is Saruman really dead exactly? Yeah. And that's something that I guess Harry Potter picked up. Oh, yes. <laughs> In a yes, big I mean, way. Harry Potter picked up a lot of this. I mean, I, I always, when I watch the, uh, watch or read the final book movie, I think about the the Horcruxes and the like, ah, yes, it's an ob- it's an, an evil object that has the soul of the Dark Lord and it makes you mean if you carry it for too long. Yeah. Where have I heard this before? <laughs> right. Where did you get right. that one? Huh, huh. weird. Huh. <laughs> well, um, it will interest you and maybe your listeners to know that I'm teaching, uh, team teaching a course on the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, the church mm-hmm. that uh, the sainted King Louis IX uh, erected to house the relic of the crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. And many of the students initially, we were talking about relics and why they're important. And they were sort of put off by the fact that they're just little pieces of junk. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, how could some random bone or uh, object that you say is the crown of thorns have such power, even apart from the issue mm-hmm. of whether they're genuine or not. And, you know, we were trying to communicate that that's the whole point is that it's a paradox. It looks like mm-hmm. a, a piece of trash, but it, it is a center of power. And um, the Horcrux is like that. And mm-hmm. so is the the use of random pieces of stuff uh, for um, what is it called the, the for for traveling? Oh, the uh, port keys. Traveling. The port keys. Port keys, right? Yeah, right, exactly. It's not some beautiful object. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tin can or or, or something like that. The ring is interesting in that regard as well, because while it certainly is, you know, it's it's gold, right? I mean, it's vaguely attractive, but it's very plain, first of all, that it has, you know, markings on them, but the markings aren't even visible most of the time. It's contrasted with the other rings of power, which all had gems or stones and that the, and that this didn't, it's just, it's, so it's very plain in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of discussion about it being as something that's, so small and how can something that's so small and potentially easily overlooked be so important yeah but it is gold and it is heavy and it is indestructible yes um and its power is sort of referent only to the lord of the rings yes to the dark lord I always find it interesting that there are these people who keep talking about like, well, maybe we could use the ring. And for many of them, I'm like, how, how do you think you're going to use the ring? What is your, uh, what is your plan? How, how, how do you think you are, you have the ability to do this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wondered the same. Do you just hold it and say, die you uh, uh, enemy armies mm-hmm. or yeah. The other thing with regard to the ring, I mean, I think it's brilliant that, of course, they never occurs to Sauron what their plan is. Mm-hmm. Right. 
because it never occurs to him, first of all, to take hobbits very seriously, mm-hmm. at least once they escape his clutches and get to Rivendell. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't occur to them him that in possession of the ring, people wouldn't use it. Yeah. But yeah. why doesn't it occur to him after a few weeks that they have of them not using it? Mm-hmm. That's the whole point with him and Sauron. They're, they're too vain to imagine that ordinary people have any effect on their, mm-hmm. on their lives. Right. Or that people don't have their, their kind of uh, sort of evil ambition, essentially, that they can't imagine others not having that yeah. and having this willingness to destroy the ring rather than use it as a means of gaining power for themselves. And which is another thing that J.K. Rowling kind of copied in that uh, Voldemort, who has this kind of obsession with longevity and survival, can't imagine voluntary sacrifice. Right. Right. And, and he has a great contempt for even ordinary wizards, let alone, mm-hmm. uh, let alone muggles. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a, uh, yeah. So there, there is this kind of interesting aspect of that. And, and of course, well, I mean, the ambition too is also very much uh, kind of demonized in some ways. I mean, the, in, in many ways, what kind of makes Aragorn to the person who has the right to be the king is not just his bloodline to some extent. It's the fact that he seems not to want it a great deal. Yeah. Which is appropriate given it's sort of medieval. Yes. But he has to have it because he can cure. Right. Right. So that, uh, that it is, that it is important and right in that he's, but that he, you know, he essentially, this is in some ways kind of thrust upon him, right. That it is necessary that he do this, but that he's doing it kind of for the greater good rather than out of his own desire for power or ambition. Yeah. So he has a sense of humor as does Gandalf, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as do the hobbits, but that too, like sex and food is in short supply. Yes. And I, and I, you know, I find Aragorn very likable and very compelling. Uh, he was, he was always a favorite character of mine, but that, I mean, to some extent he, he's kind of less interesting when he's, you know, at the end when he's becoming a king than he is when he uh, has this kind of humor and sort of grittiness uh, exactly. as he does. Exactly. As king, he's boring. I'd say that mm-hmm. once they get through the lands of the dead, and he really takes charge. He becomes a less interesting person, indeed. Yeah, yeah. The although the you know the army of the dead is excellent. I'm very it's fond of the great, army of the dead. Great, yeah. Great part. Yeah. And I also have to kind of wonder what is going on in 2003 aesthetically, because the army of the dead in the in Return of the King is virtually identical to the dead pirates and pirates of the Caribbean, which came out the same year. <laughs> Whoa! Wow! I and it's also know that. like, yeah, and it's also like you know the great moment of you know people being interested in Orlando Bloom, who I think is who's an actor who I like in Lord of the Rings, but to some extent I like in Lord of the Rings because Legolas, in some ways, doesn't have to do very much. That he really just kind of has to look sort of distant and ethereal, but also be very active. But he doesn't kind of have a really defined personality in a lot of ways. Who do you think does in the movie? And I think the Hobbits have in some way very much the kind of most defined personalities. And I think, you know, Merry and Pippin is really the kind of quirkiest. Yeah, I found them a little too clownish in the movie Mm -hmm. and too, I don't know, high school kiddish. But Mm -hmm. of course, they are young. Yeah. But their self-sacrifice in the book 
and they're more animated and gay in the sense of uh, lively, joyful than Frodo, uh, and not as subservient as Sam. Of course, in some respects, Sam doesn't age well because the whole begging your pardon, Mr. Frodo uh, (laughs) affect of a, you know, a lower class servitor mm-hmm. is uh, uh, is unfamiliar or unwelcome, mm-hmm. and also to some extent makes Frodo a little less likable in some ways. And that it's you know you've you've been you know traveling alone with this man for what months a year in terms of you know how long this journey actually takes like and you're really you're still like basically letting him treat you like you're the master and he's a servant. It's like you, I think he's kind of earned some amount of equality at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Jeeves and Wooster in the mm-hmm. uh, P.G. Wodehouse stories, uh, uh, where you know Jeeves' chief concern is uh, to prevent uh, Bertie Wooster from re- wearing a, uh, a stupid bow tie that he's taken a fancy to, mm-hmm. uh, and or a red cummerbund or uh, other vulgarities. And mm-hmm. yeah, this this sort of doesn't speak to any familiar experience for most most people now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I, I, I really do like in, in the films, I really do like Marriott Pippin's arc and that they have these very kind of clownish moments, but that you also kind of see them in some ways kind of moving toward greater degrees of self-sacrifice that at first in terms of just going on the quest, it's like, this seems fun. We would like to also do this thing. But then you gradually see them, you know, doing things that are, you know, not things that are so likable that you see them actually, you know, risking themselves to draw the orcs off uh, in order to uh, allow Frodo to get away. And I think that, you know, Pippin in particular, I think kind of Pippin, Pippin in Gondor, I really find, I really like that, uh, that kind of moment, that, uh, that arc for him. And of course, the cleverness of this is that the reader can identify with characters who are not titled or mm-hmm. warriors or extraordinary in mm-hmm. any obvious way to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure to take a little bit of time to talk about some of the kind of other medievalism aspects of the books and the film, and in particular to mention Tolkien's medievalism and its influence. And in particular, of course, the fact that uh, my listeners, some of them might already know this, but some of them might not, that, of course, Tolkien is himself a, or was himself a medievalist. Oh, yeah, a very great medievalist uh, uh, in literature who wrote about several kinds of literature. He is best known, I think, for his work on uh, Old English texts, but he was very interested in Scandinavian material, and he described himself as being enchanted by the Nordic uh, Mm -hmm. world, by the world of Norse mythology, particularly its pessimism Mm -hmm. and its um, a sense of human beings as struggling against monstrous and adverse nature that that struggle uh, in, in turn ennobled them. Yeah, he's also somebody who I think just in terms of thinking about medievalism and fantasy, he's also had a major impact from what I understand on Beowulf criticism and scholarship. And that a lot of people kind of were were sort of using Beowulf to kind of mine it for, you know, is this maybe a reference to a real king or something that really happened and then said in there, this, these bits with monsters that are silly and unimportant. 
and that he saw the monsters as mattering in terms of what they could have told us about medieval worldviews. Very much so. Yeah. And uh, he was a more imaginative medievalist than most philologically minded Mm -hmm. scholars of Old English at his time. In his time also, it's interesting to compare him with C.S. Lewis. So they Mm -hmm. were part of the same circle called the Inklings that met at a pub, I think the Lamb and Child, I think it's the eagle and child. Eagle and child, right. The lamb and flag is is nearby. Yeah. The eagle and child across from St. John's. Apparently it's colloquially called the bird and baby. Baby, bird and baby. That's right. That's right. For most of the time, C.S. Lewis was a famous person, a Mm -hmm. radio personality, a pontificator on how to live your life, an active Uh, explainer of Christianity, and also the writer of fantasy novels and Mm -hmm. uh, stories, uh, the Narnia, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Uh, And in uh, uh, there's a book called The Inklings in which you sort of see them reading Tolkien and the realization that his accomplishment is far greater than that Mm -hmm. of C.S. Lewis as an act of the imagination of what we would call world creation. And they had rather different personalities. Tolkien, somewhat calmer, Catholic, more conventional in a sense, uh, and very marked by World War I and his experiences, Mm -hmm. where um, C.S. Lewis was a paradoxical character, more passionate, much more active in trying to explain and and to get people to uh, follow his agenda. Right. Uh, And also someone who, whose personal passions were odd Mm -hmm. in terms of his social setting. He, Mm -hmm. he lived with a woman uh, who was Jewish that he wasn't married to, which is about as odd as you can get in the Oxford of the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. They're both, you know, is amazing to imagine them and mm-hmm. other members of the circle in the same room, uh, the same reading pub, these drafts, right? Reading but these drafts and conversing. Yeah, but they, you know, they they are these very different works. And to some, I mean, to some extent, as in, I liked the Narnia series a lot as a child. As an adult, I tend to be put off by how overt the Christianness of it all is. Right. 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 They're, they're vulgar in some sense. I'll probably mm-hmm. get in trouble for this, but they're, um, they're deeply say, obvious. And yeah. yeah, the best thing I like is the notion that kids will sell their soul for uh, Turkish delight. Which I think everybody who read that as a child and then actually tried Turkish delight then immediately said, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you had to be in Britain uh, post-war when even right. well-off people were starved for sugary treats as well as almost everything else. Right, yeah. but you know, if you if you grow up in like the late twentieth century United States, it's like really this yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. WTF or words to that effect. Right. But yeah, and I think Tolkien's genius in a lot of ways is that there's clearly these various you know, medieval influences, but I don't think he's uh, 
overly devoted to having a kind of medieval, you know, medieval verisimilitude or having, you know, obvious one-to-one analogies for the most part, with few exceptions here and there, that the medievalism is present, but it's quite vague. And the, in a lot of ways, also the, the sort of analogies and the meanings are a bit, you know, more subtle or more debatable. And I think he actually uh, was kind of actively said, you know, this isn't an analogy, you know, stop saying it's, you know, an analogy to, you know, either world war, you know, stop it, it isn't. Right, right. And he also was able to create uh, a a world that contrasted the medieval with the, Mm -hmm. say, early 20th century. So the hobbits uh, whatever their material conditions, are reflections of Tolkien's idea of ordinary English people right. of his time. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like people from the early 20th century journeying into the mm-hmm. Middle Ages. The Shire is kind of a pastoral, I mean, 19th century yeah. um, English world. And uh, this, once again, is something, I mean, the Game of Thrones doesn't have such characters. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite as obvious, but the figure of Tyrion in particular is like the modern person caught yes. in a world of rather fanatical or unimaginative people, even the mm-hmm. good ones. His sense of irony, of sensuality, of slight irritability, of being put upon mm-hmm. is a way of attracting the sympathy of the reader. And of course, Mm -hmm. it's everybody's favorite character because he's one of the few who could be seen to be uh, not only like them, but Mm -hmm. like help I'm trapped in a fantasy world Mm -hmm. and I'm actually just a regular old earthling. Yeah, and he allows us to voice our critique of both the of both the villainy, but also the you know unrealistic ideas of honor and whatnot that you know we see as well. So uh, yeah. yeah, that he very much kind of has that has that function as a kind of reader insert in some ways. No, I think you have to have this to make something rise above the level of generic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Is to engage the reader through something in which there is some person or voice that represents a only slightly flattering description of their own attitude. Mm-hmm. But which is, I think, in some ways, uh, sort of a struggle to do well. I mean, because it's interesting that I find a lot of uh, things that sort of purport to be medieval historical fiction kind of do this as well. But they often do this in the sort of like, well, but, you know, in Kingdom of Heaven, Heaven, really, Bailey and of Ebelan is just like a nice, you know, ordinary blacksmith. And you can, and he's sort of an atheist and you can relate to him, right? Right. Uh, or it's sort of cringe-inducing when done poorly. Horrible Brother Cadful mystery stories <laughs> of the 1990s. Horrible, not intrinsically. I just didn't happen to like them. But horrible because everybody I knew would, like, give me presents of those books or ask me about those mm-hmm. books. And wouldn't believe me when I said, no, I've only read one of them and I hated it, uh, uh, you know, because I was supposed to uh, like these. These, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with us, were a series of mystery stories where the monk of a monastery named Brother Cadfell solves them. And so they're set in the Middle Ages and they, so he's a sort of Sherlock Holmes-like uh, a figure who's uh, taken vows, but Mm -hmm. the obviousness of him being kind of like a 
a thoughtful and sensible person uh, of modern tendencies in a overdone ye old medieval world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that was successful commercially, but mm-hmm. in my opinion, not aesthetically. Right. And there's and there's a lot of that. And right. So this is very kind of difficult to do well. And this is an example of something that that does. Uh, but also, I think it is so interesting in terms of this question of why is it that so much fantasy is medieval, sort of medieval-esque, medieval inspired. And to some extent, I don't think it's really about the Middle Ages per se, so much as that it's actually is about Tolkien and the fact that it's then, you know, he essentially kind of created so much of kind of fantasy as it kind of transformed as a genre that it's really impossible for writers of fantasy to not overtly or at least implicitly be referring back to or contrasting themselves with Tolkien. And that to some extent, I think that's made medieval Western Europe as this model for fantasy, for fantastical settings. Yeah, definitely. And you can say that Tolkien is building on a tradition of the Gothic Mm -hmm. uh, and that there are lots of people who wrote uh, medieval fantasies or fictions set in the middle ages. Uh, Sir Walter Scott, uh, certainly uh, as popular and even more so as Tolkien, Mm -hmm. but with a way of non-obvious but intense way of making it speak to things that the reader is concerned about. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's hard to imagine the reader being concerned about whatever problems are presented in Ivanhoe. Right. Right. Having a, I, I covered recently uh, an, a, an Ivanhoe BBC miniseries, which yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it felt relatable per se in terms of uh, connecting to modern concerns. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to have the point of fantasy <laughs> is to be fantasy. Right. But it has a kind of greater effect if there's some kind of inside out turning mm-hmm. towards the contemporary, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that is something that that Tolkien does extremely well. So the other kind of in, uh, kind of aspect in terms of medievalism that I wanted to talk about a little is, of course, the kinds of choices that get made of uh, kind of which medieval and where essentially uh, gets focused on. And of course that we, you know, have a problem in, well, I guess not in medieval studies per se exactly so much as in you know, modern perceptions of the Middle Ages that often kind of associated with this sort of white Nordic Christian past and ways that are then kind of very inextricably bound up at times with white supremacy. And Tolkien, I don't think at all, I certainly would not at all say, you know, is doing intention, you know, intentionally participating in any kind of discourse like that, that that it is kind of worth thinking about the ways in which that's perhaps kind of an influence too on some of those discourses uh, is the fact that it's a very Anglo-Saxon Nordic world. We have the source of evil as coming from the East and the South, which then raises similar concerns. And then of course, in the film, the only people who are not white are people who are, you know, part of that kind of faceless mass of the Eastern uh, Haradrim, which are very clearly sort of Arab inspired uh, and these kind of vague Southern pirates. Right. The orcs carry scimitars. Right. Uh, And yeah, I think, I mean, Tolkien in his era was 
surprisingly devoid of maybe too strong a term, but uh, uninterested in anti-Semitism. Yes. So apparently there was an offer to translate The Hobbit into German Mm -hmm. uh, in the 30s, and it required some certification that he was Aryan, and Mm -hmm. he uh, refused to sign it, and uh, he sort of made fun of their circumlocuitous terminology Mm -hmm. in this about, you know, what do you mean uh, that... uh, uh, I have no whatever was Semitic heritage. Are you referring to uh, the people of the Old Testament? Uh-huh. So, but certainly the racial assumptions or let's say typology mm-hmm. of evil, n- not necessarily of the principles of evil. In other words, uh, Sauron probably is you know, white, but. Um, uh-huh that the people that he's able to enslave uh, mm-hmm. from the orcs to the Haradrim to the Southerns are uh, people of color. Is, right. Um, yeah. Is certainly part of his sociological and intellectual baggage. Yeah. And I, and the other thing which is interesting is that he actually talked about the dwarves as being in some ways uh, sort of Jewish coded. He said that he, uh, he thinks of the dwarves like Jews as once native and alien in their habitations, speaking the languages of the country, but with an accent due to their own private tongue. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. And I find that um, puzzling as well as disappointing because mm-hmm. the dwarves as hoarders of gold or lovers yes. of gold is certainly a topos that goes back long before any of the Nordic or Germanic peoples knew what Jews were. Mm -hmm. And so like in the Nibelung uh, legends, they're smiths. And Mm -hmm. also their their attraction to gold is different than the stereotypes of Jews. Jews are stereotyped as having no particular agricultural or artisanal skills, Mm -hmm. but simply commercial ones. Uh, Part of their evil is making money off of Money lending, uh, uh, interest. Whereas the dwarves very much are laborers and smiths and have skills. That's right. That's right. They have great skills, unique skills. And that's how they're depicted in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. They're, they're eager for gold, mm-hmm. uh, but you know they're in the mines of Moria, not just to collect ingots, but to make them mm-hmm. out of yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, he says that supposed to, they're supposed to be, but this idea of them as not kind of full citizens, I don't get that either. In the right. verses of the Ents, the Treebeard quotes, you know, learn the lore of living creatures. Dwarves are, mm-hmm. you know, among the basic living creatures. Dwarves and yeah. elves have a historical enmity. Dwarves have a permanent home. So uh, I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah, and it kind of oddly—I mean—so to the the only way it seems to show up for me in Lord of the Rings is the extent to which there is almost this kind of odd hint of exile, just because we see so few dwarves. That whereas dwarves are obviously central in the Hobbit, and we we have we have quite a lot of dwarves. There's, you know, so we, you know, we see the mines of Moria, the dwarves there are, you know, are gone, right? I mean, this essentially this entire population has been killed off. We know of this other kingdom, but we never actually see it. The dwarves never, the dwarves never show up 
Yeah, I know. Well, the, a lot of people don't show up there. There isn't a huge representation of elves either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd have thought if this was Armageddon that the dwarves would show up in a big way. I, I, I'm not sure I understand that. but uh, Right. So there's, yeah, so there's this kind of odd, sudden kind of presumption of, you know, dwarves as these kind of isolated wanderers, which seems very at odds with the dwarves in The Hobbit. Right. Um, So there's that element. The other thing that I thought was really interesting as I was doing the prep for this is that, so there is this line uh, that is something, you know, talking at Moria, this thing like the dwarves delve too greedily and too deep. And, you know, obviously the kind of greed line, right, uh, kind of jumps out to me in terms of, you know, my own research and and teaching in anti-Judaism, medieval anti-Judaism, and in particular economic anti-Judaism. But in the book, it is said by a dwarf, it's a Gloin actually says it himself, whereas in the movie, it is, oh, now I'm trying to remember who says it. Uh, I think it is actually that like Saruman says it in a voiceover, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it might be Gandalf and I might be mixing up my, you know, elderly long bearded wizards. Uh, Easy to do. That's Um, right. But uh, again, this is, uh, you know, greed is not in even anti-Semitic culture, a Jewish monopoly. And they dug too deep. They were actually working the Mm minds. And the stereotype of Jews is that they're able to make money on the labor of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is, it is really, I find it really interesting because it is distinctive. It is very much distinct from the kind of traditional Jewish coding and stereotypes that you often see in other fantasy. You know, we've obviously touched on Harry Potter, where I think the goblins are a far more questionable and problematic example that you have the, the bankers. Yeah. Yes, the, the long-nosed race of people who run the banks. Yeah. 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 Um, there must be an app to prevent you from uh, as a fantasy writer, you know, from inadvertently or well, let's leave the advertently or inadvertently out from sort of falling into these particular uh, traps. But as you said about the Middle Ages being the scene for fantasy, it's hard to pick and choose among the mm-hmm. types once you yes. entered, entered the, the zone. Yes, I, I kind of want to hire myself out, actually, and see if I can just be a consultant, just like quickly skim through and say, like, no, you're you're good on not having implicit anti-Semitism. Uh, don't joke. Uh, I think um, I think that's I think that's something uh, that the, the fantasy world, uh, the writer's world needs. It, it often seems so to uh, an extent, which is jarring at times. As we kind of come to a close, I normally have a segment on this podcast uh, called the Fabula Nostra, where we come up with a film or other piece of media in some ways inspired by this one. Are there things that you would want to see in terms of, you know, other directions for, you know, fantasy works that could have, you know, similarities or differences to this, uh, other things that you might want to see? And, you know, we are getting a, another another Lord of the Rings adaptation, the kind of Amazon TV show coming out. What is that going to be about? I mean, that was my first thought. How is that going to be different? I mean, I think it's a Silmarillion. Uh, I mean, not okay. done per se, exactly, right. but I think it's sort of prequel world of Middle Earth. That's a tough order. I found the Silmarillion kind of hard going. I mean, uh, yeah. there's so many things that separate you from the real fanatics. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd like to see some of the things that were left out of the film. I'd like to see a Tom Bambadel uh, 
series. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's immune to the ring mm-hmm. uh, is interesting. In the books, he's he's kind of, I mean, his way of speaking is annoying. His sort yeah. of nursery uh, rhyme discourse is annoying. Um, and his manic gaiety is irritating. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. as magical even within a magical world a hyper magical figure i'd like to i'd like to hear more about him another thing is the proliferation of names i mean i don't know what mm-hmm. to do with it but only the hobbits have kind of like one name frodo is frodo but you know right. aragorn has strider and uh, dunedin and there's uh, an interesting kind of mockery of this actually i don't know if you've heard of the podcast uh, hello from the magic tavern no it's sort of a mockery of kind of medieval inspired fantasy, but there's a, a wizard character, Usador, who his gimmick is that, you know, he has many names and he's, you know, the elves call me this and the dwarves call me this. And he kind of goes on and on. And I have all of these other secret names and, you know, I can never tell you all of them. Yeah. Well, I, I immediately thought of a book called The Dalai Lama's Cat that we may have spoken about uh, in other contexts. So this book, it takes the conceit that uh, a female cat is rescued by the Dalai Lama's motorcade as he's stuck in traffic in New Delhi. And they take him to the headquarters of the Dalai Lama in the Himalayas or foothills of the Himalayas. And the cat learns a lot of Buddhist wisdom. So mm-hmm. the cat has some Buddhist wisdom already, like, you know, cats don't really make a lot of future plans nor do they have a lot of regrets about the past. But uh, she experiences jealousy, fear of novelty, all sorts of things that uh, she has to learn. Forgive me, what were we just discussing that made me... uh, Uh, Proliferations of names? Oh, yes, exactly. So this cat has many names Mm -hmm. or no single name. Usually, she is referred to by others in the entourage of the Dalai Lama as HHC, uh, His Holiness's Cat. And she refers to herself sometimes as HHC, but she has a lot of tentative names. And Mm -hmm. once again, I think the ungraspability of the protagonist is symbolized Mm -hmm. by the multiplicity of names. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see that, that dealt with. Uh, I would really like to see something that thought about, I guess, the kind of many absent women. I mean, the the Entwives, and I find it so fascinating that it kind of actually vocalizes the fact that, no, like, we we lost all of the women. They're all, they have all disappeared. And the dwarves, there's this kind of odd bit where at some point, uh, I can't remember, I think there's something similar in the book, but it's at least in the film, right, that, you know, Gimli has this kind of bit where, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, people think there are no dwarf women, but it's just because they actually look very similar to the dwarf men. I think that I think that would be great. The, the same thought yeah. has occurred to me, uh, kind of like, where are the women? There aren't a whole lot of uh, female hobbits either. Right. Yeah. And we've got, you know, Rosie Cotton as our kind of obligatory love interest for about you know, one of them. Yeah. One of them must have a love interest. But otherwise, yeah, we see very little of the female hobbits. We have this kind of vague implication that Eowyn is not necessarily fully unique in term among the Rohirrim in terms of having been, uh, you know, kind of trained in at least kind of some basic, you know, self-defense, but that we don't see much of the others. I'm not sure there's any evidence that there's a single woman in Gondor. 
uh, yeah. directly. Yeah. Now, um, in, uh, among the Rohirrim, they're only the sort of women and children. Uh, right. Who sent up to the Helm's Deep. deep. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you have that kind of move, right, where despite the fact that it again, kind of hints that the women have some skills, then we, then we say like, oh, we're going to arm like 10-year-old boys, but we're not going to arm the women. Yeah. <laughs> Which I always find so irritating. Uh, and yeah, and then in the movies in Gondor, you see kind of women like, I don't know, like throwing flower petals at the men who are going off to die, basically. And otherwise, you don't see much of them either. And the other kind of aspect of this that I think would have been interesting, uh, given particularly the reference that essentially, you know, there's no meaningful visual difference between dwarf women and dwarf men. We, you know, we have not talked at all about the Hobbit movies, and I consider them deeply uh, best forgotten, in part because of the kind of money grab angle of deciding to, you know, make them into three movies. Three, yeah. Couldn't have been four. God, you know, and and the the amount of uh, warfare in them. Is, but there's no uh, warfare in The Hobbit. I yeah, mean, because in right. Lord of the Rings, at least that's, you know, they they up it a bit, but it's part of it. But in The Hobbit, it's not, it's fundamentally not there except at the very end. And that, of right. course, which I think they make, they basically make the Battle of the Five Armies into an entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is for boys. Yeah. Um, the, the, the producer's idea of boys. Right. But if somebody were to do another Hobbit adaptation, I actually think that the dwarves that could be kind of ripe for a sort of gender blind casting. Indeed. Indeed. What a great idea. Yeah, I think I think that would be fun. So typically, as uh, the last thing that we do on the podcast is that uh, we rate this media on a scale from one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit, uh, which for me out of just kind of pure nostalgia, I kind of feel I have to give it a five. Uh, oh, yes. I'd give the book a five and the films a three. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I would, yeah, I, I would, I would give them both a five, but uh, as I said, I, yeah, you know, I, think saw, that, I, I uh, saw the movies when I was like 14 to 16. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not unhappy with that result. Paul, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Thank you for having me. This was great. Are there places where the listeners could uh, find you on the internet if they would like to do so? Yeah, just Google my name, Paul Friedman, and it's F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N and Yale University. And uh, I'd be glad to hear from you. All right, great. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and read and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifstecker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Paul, thank you again. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.